Good morning. Hope that you're doing well. I hope that you're enjoying this final day of May. I don't know about you, but it feels like the month has flown by for me. But it also means that we are into our full swing with summer. And uh, what we've been doing as a church this summer is starting a series on Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are two historical books in the Old Testament that tell the story of what God is doing to bring his people out of exile and back into the promised land that he had originally given them. Now, that you might hear that and say, why do we care about that as a church that's living over 2,000 years later? What does it matter to us about a nation that was brought back to live in a certain land? Well, I think that there's two major reasons that this is an important thing for us to know as Christians and why God found it valuable to put in the scriptures. The first is that the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and what God does to bring his people out of exile and what happens thereafter is an important part of the big story of redemption that tells us what God is doing to redeem this earth and how he's actually going to do that effectively. You'll see that some as we go throughout the series, but you're especially going to see that in the final sermon as we look back and have an evaluation of the books as a whole. But also, as we go through these historical books, we see that Ezra and Nehemiah and the people they're leading are confronted with situations that are similar to the kind of situations that we face on an everyday level, even living as Christians in 21st century America. Sure, they look a little bit different, but there's a lot that we can learn from the way that they handle the, fa- the situations that they faced and what we can take to better handle the situations that we face. Now, it doesn't mean that they always did what was right. It doesn't mean that they always did what was wrong. But they start a good, uh, they give us a good place to have a starting point for a conversation about how we should deal with the kind of issues that they find themselves coming up against. So the issue that we're going to look at today in Ezra and Nehemiah as we're going through this, uh, we're only, this is our third week into the series. We started with this Edict of Cyrus, where he, uh, Cyrus was the king of Persia. He told them that they could leave Persia, which is where they were living in exile. Well, they were living in Babylon in exile, which had been conquered by Persia. They can leave that, and they can go back to their homeland, and they can rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And most importantly, they can rebuild the temple, which was the center of Jewish worship there. So Trevor took us through last week the beginning of that process where they started to make sacrifices to God again and they laid the foundation of the temple. So we're going to pick up on a spot now where that temple is, is starting to be rebuilt. Now, before we get into the text, though, I find I want to draw a parallel to a situation I think a lot of you guys might be familiar with. Most of you have probably seen the movie The Incredibles. And The Incredibles, if you haven't seen it, it's a cartoon movie. It's a lot of fun. But it's basically the story of this superhero named Mr. Incredible and his family. However, there's an important uh, plot development that happens early in the movie. There's this little boy, his name's Buddy Pine, he's a 10-year-old kid who calls himself Incredible Boy. And he is one of the biggest fans of Mr. Incredible. He says he's the biggest fan of Mr. Incredible that there is. So much so that he wants to help Mr. Incredible go and fight all of this crime in the city. Now, Mr. Incredible, being a grown man and an actual superhero, sees a 10-year-old boy and says, there's no way that this kid is going to be able to help me in any capacity. So he rudely dismisses his offer for help, ejects him from his car, and tells him that he works alone. Well, this scars Buddy so badly that instead he actually grows up to become a supervillain that will be named Syndrome. And the, the movie climaxes to the point where you find that Syndrome is actually trying to defeat Mr. Incredible, and you see the clash that these two have at the end. The situation is actually somewhat similar to the situation that we're going to find happening in Ezra and Nehemiah today. So that's just to prep you there. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to speak uh, through his scripture to us this morning and uh, see what we can learn from that. 
God, we love you. We thank you that you are good to us. Uh, we thank you that uh, your word teaches us that it's valuable in so many ways, Lord, that it, it trains us, that it helps us to know you more. I pray that you would give us the ability to focus on you this morning, that you would give us the ability to uh, focus on your word, to read it, to understand it, and to properly apply it in our lives for change, God, because we want to be faithful followers of you. We love you so much. We thank you for who you are, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right. So we're going to be in Ezra chapter 4, starting at verses one and verse 1 going through verse 5. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God. And have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esharhadan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right, so what we have here, the Jews have, have come back into their homeland, and there's still other people that are living in this area, in the surrounding area, and they've come back with the goal of rebuilding the temple. Now, the temple is a magnificent structure, both in size and in quality. It's a giant thing. It's a giant project. They have a lot of stone to, to cut and to raise up, and there's ornate fixtures that need to be made. There's quite a bit of work that's ahead of them. So these people come along that are living in the land. They say, hey, we want to help you because we worship your God too. As a reader, initially, I'm thinking, great, this is awesome. Like, There's so much work that's here to be done, and these people say that they want to help. Like This, this seems like a godsend. And these people also seem to have the same motives. They say, hey, we worship your God too. We've been worshiping him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. Now, you probably don't know who that is, but he was a king that lived over 100 years before this time. So they're like, hey, we've been worshiping your God for a while. And we're excited about the project that you're doing. So naturally, I'm thinking, great. Get all the help you can get. However, this is the opposite of the reaction that the Jewish leaders had. When they came and offered their help, Zerubbabel and Joshua said, no, 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 we, we don't want your help on this project at all. They reject the offer, and consequently, these people become kind of like Buddy Pine turning into syndrome. Instead of saying, hey, I want to help with your project, they end up becoming the enemies. And they do everything that they can to thwart the project. We see that it causes them problems uh, all during the reign of Cyrus, all the way to the, the time of Darius. And the author of Ezra, if we were to continue reading on in chapter 4, actually goes out of chronological order to show a time that they were even causing a problem during the time of King Xerxes. And actually, as we're going to see as the sermon continues to unfold, these people would continue to cause problems long after that even. So we have that unfortunate situation where Mr. Incredible rejects Buddy Pine and Buddy Pine turns into syndrome. That's essentially what we've got going on here. And as a reader, I can't help but think this is a little bit strange. Why would you reject the help of these people that want to come and, and aid in your giant project? 
Now, in order to do this, we, we don't know for sure what the motives are of the Jews. We don't know for sure what the motives are of these people that came to them. So we have to make some educated guesses here, all right? But the, the first thing that we need to do in trying to understand what's happening here is who exactly are these people that came and offered their help? Now, uh, one other thing I want to, to do before we get into this, though, is note that just because we see something happen in a historical book doesn't mean that it's necessarily right or wrong. All right? this, these are historical books of the Old Testament. They are telling us a story of what happened. It may be a good decision. It may be a bad decision. The Bible is full of stories that tell us both good and bad decisions, right? So if you read about David, you see the good decision that he made in taking, having the courage to go and take on Goliath and slay the giant. We see the bad decision that he made in choosing to sleep with Bathsheba and commit adultery. So there's, the Bible is full of all sorts of things like that. Just because this is what the Jews did, it doesn't mean that we know it's automatically right. It doesn't mean that it's automatically wrong. We have to look at other explicit teaching in the Bible to help us evaluate what, what the proper thing was to do in that situation. So that's what we're going to try and do here is understand Man, what were the motives that the Jews had in this, and did they make a good decision or not? So I think that there were probably two motives that were really driving the Jews for rejecting the help that was being offered to them. And the first was, I think that they were very zealous about maintaining their purity and their worship of the Lord. And this, of course, is a good motive, right? We see that the first two commandments that God gave the Israelites both relate to the fact that he's the only God that should be worshipped. Now, if you also put yourself in their shoes, they had just been in exile for 70 years. They had become so sinful that God kicked them out of this land, sent them into exile in Babylon, and now they're being brought back. So the last thing that they wanted to do is fall into idol worship. They wanted to do everything they could to protect themselves against this, and that makes sense. The only issue is the text tells us that these people worship the same God as the Jews. So why is it that they would still fear help from these people, even though they're claiming, hey, we worship the same God that you do? For us to answer this question, we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper into who these people actually were. So it's important to know this. I'm going to have to take you through a little bit of history here and a few confusing uh, terms, but it's going to be valuable for us for understanding this passage. So... Under the reign of King Solomon, he's one of the most famous kings of Israel. He was the son of David. He was actually the last king of the united monarchy, where all 12 tribes of Israel were together as one nation. After he died, the nation of Israel split into two nations. Ten of the tribes, the ten northern tribes, split off from the other two. And so these ten northern tribes oftentimes you will still see referred to as Israel. Sometimes you'll see them referred to as Ephraim because that was the largest of the 10 tribes that split off. The two southern tribes uh, remained with their capital in Jerusalem, and these were the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Now, you'll see the term Jew actually only relates to these people. Jew has its roots in the, the tribe Judah. Now, something else that's interesting about those 10 northern tribes that split off, since they split off, their capital was no longer Jerusalem. They had to choose a new capital. That new capital that they would choose was the city of Samaria, which you're like thinking, oh, I've heard of Samaritans before. You're starting to put some pieces together of how this is all going to unfold. They have this new capital called uh, Samaria. Now, the, the thing that gets confusing about the terminology sometimes is that you have two nations, you have Israel and you have Judah. 
However, Judah is still also technically Israel. They're still descended from the man named Israel who had 12 sons, which would make the 12 tribes. So every now and then you'll still see the people of Judah referred to as Israelites, even though they are a different nation from those 10 northern tribes. Now, the other thing that's important for us to realize here, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we are documenting the return of the Jews, Judah and Benjamin, those two southern tribes, we're documenting their return from exile. The northern tribes, Israel, those, those 10 northern tribes, also went into exile, and they actually went into exile earlier than Judah and Benjamin. Because even though Judah and Benjamin were sinful, the 10 northern tribes were even worse, and they were even more unfaithful to God. So they went into exile much earlier than the Jews did. And they went into exile under the reign of Assyria. Now, they didn't get it. They, they did not get treated as nicely as the Jews did. Instead, they all got uprooted from their homeland. And then they went and uh, the king of Assyria repopulated that territory of Israel with other people. And so they kind of started to mix together and become, they, they lost a lot of their ethnic purity that was so important to them. And so this kind of mixed race became what we now know as Samaritans. And so the, now you're thinking, okay, this is a term I've heard before, Jews and Samaritans in the New Testament. We see them having problems. This is where that root comes from. Samaritans are this group of people that's left behind uh, in, in the old territory of Israel that's been mixed in with all of these Assyrian people that have been imported into there. Now, I go through all that history because the only way that we can understand what's going on in Ezra 4 is to understand why there's this distinction between the Jews who worship God, Yahweh, and these other people, that, which we now know are Samaritans, that are coming and saying, hey, we worship God too, and we want to help. Here's, here's a passage that I'm going to read out of 2 Kings. It's kind of lengthy, but it's going to explain to you the reason why the Jews were so skeptical about the help that the Samaritans were offering. Here we see in 2 Kings chapter 17, starting at verse 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharavim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, The people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them, which are killing them off, because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The people from Babylon made Succoth, Benoth, for those from Kutha made Nergal, and those from Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sephravites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adramalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvaim. 
They worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, Do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. To him you shall bow down and to him offer sacrifices. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands he wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I have made with you and do not worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. All right, so now we see what the problem is. The reason that the Jews rejected the help of the Samaritans, at least one reason, was because they said, hey, yeah, you guys may claim to be worshipers of God, but you also worship all of these other gods. And so what it was is this, the Samaritans were these syncretic worshipers. They tried to mix these several different religions into making this one amalgamation of, of several different religions. And the Jews were saying, no, we don't want that. As we're restarting our society, as we're rebuilding this temple, we want to actually have good doctrine we want to have good purity and we want to follow the Lord faithfully. So that's actually a good reason for why they may have rejected the help from the Samaritans. However, I think there could have also been another motive at play here. And once again, we're making an educated guess because it doesn't tell us for sure why these things happen. I think like most things, there were probably mixed motives that were going on here. And the second motive is not as great. And that, I think, is something that stems from a certain exclusivism or an elitism that they portrayed. When you read the response that the Jews gave to the Samaritans, it comes across as pretty exclusive and maybe even elitist. Uh, we see in Ezra 4.3, they said, But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. So they're adamant that they need to be the only ones that are building this temple. They say, hey, this is what King Cyrus commanded, and they clearly think that this is what God wanted as well. So let's look at both those claims. First off, did Cyrus command that the Jews should be the only ones to build this temple? If we look back to his decree in Ezra chapter 1, this is what he said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. 
So we see in Cyrus's statement here, there's nothing exclusive about it. He's releasing the Jews to go back and to rebuild. But he's also saying, hey, if there's any survivors in the locality, they should help you. Cyrus himself, who was not a Jew, was helping. We see that uh, if you were to read on there in Ezra 1, the other people that were living around there gave different uh, articles that were necessary for the building of the temple. So there were lots of people that were involved in this. Cyrus didn't care that it was only the Jews that would rebuild the temple. But honestly, what Cyrus wants isn't even what's most important. What's important is what is it that God wants? Does God want the Jews to be the only ones that are building the temple and for them to do this work alone? I would argue that God actually made it pretty clear throughout his, his prophets that he wants to bring more people to himself than just the Jews. Yes, they were a holy and set-apart people, but they were blessed to be a blessing. If you go all the way back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, their forefather, much, much further back before this time, he talks about blessing Abraham to be a blessing. And we see this same kind of theme popping up over and over throughout the prophets. The prophet Jeremiah, who we talked a little bit about in week one, because Ezra points back to him. Look at what Jeremiah had to say about God bringing others into his people. It says, At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your ancestors as an inheritance. And so Jeremiah is looking forward to this day that God is going to bring all people to Jerusalem to worship him together. And he explicitly mentions this reuniting of uh, Judah and Israel coming together and, and building this temple. So... We look at that and say, well, the Samaritans were almost the closest thing left to Israel because they had been so dispersed. Here they are offering to, to help with this work, and the Jews are rejecting them from being able to take part in this. Look at another passage from what Jeremiah said in chapter 12. He says, this is what the Lord says. As for all my wicked neighbors who seize the inheritance I gave my people Israel, these are talking about Gentile nations, I will uproot them from their lands and I will uproot the people of Judah from among them. But after I uproot them, I will again have compassion and will bring each of them back to their own inheritance in their own country. And if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be established among my people. But if any nation does not listen, I will completely uproot it and destroy it, declares the Lord. So here we see Jeremiah again is looking to this time where, hey, God is, is he's going to punish these Gentile nations. He talks about uprooting them, but then he also says he's going to restore them. And if they learn to swear by my name, they learn to follow the Lord faithfully, I'll accept them into my people, just as these Gentile nations corrupted my people with idolatry and taught them to swear by Baal. What this is looking forward to is the day that the people of God will actually be a good example to the other nations around them. And they'll teach 
those nations to worship the Lord. And in doing so, those nations will be brought together into the people of God. He says, of course, now that those that refuse to do, will be, to do that will be destroyed. But the offer is there for them to be brought together into his people. God is not an exclusivist God. He did call Israel and set them apart as a special and holy nation. But it was for the sake of the nations. I don't believe that God loves Israel any more than he loves any other nation that's out there. It's just the way that he decided to unfold his plan of redemption. So what we see here is that the Jews seem to be missing this idea that God's heart is not just for them to worship him, but for all nations to worship him. Our God is an evangelist God. He's a missionary God, and we see his heart for that in these passages. So what do we do with this as Christians now, living in the 21st century? We've seen, okay, the Jews rejected this help from the Samaritans. In one sense, you could argue it was a really good decision. They needed to maintain their impurity, their, their purity. That was very important. In the other sense, you could say, well, maybe this wasn't such a good decision because maybe this was a missed opportunity where they could have taken the Samaritans in and they could have taught them to rightly worship the Lord and there would have been some of this beautiful kind of reunification that God wanted to happen of bringing the nations into his people. I think that there are really three major things that we can take away from this as Christians today in helping us understand how we should deal with those that, uh, and how we interact with those that are outside of the family of God. And the first is that we need to maintain purity and watch out for enemies that wish to harm us. This is what the Jews were doing well here. They wanted to maintain their purity and they wanted to watch out for enemies. Uh, Jesus warned us about this kind of thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned us to watch out for false prophets. Listen to what he said in Matthew 7, uh, 7, 15 through 20. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. There are a lot of warnings in the Bible about false prophets. We see that this is something that even the early church was dealing with. And as I've been studying a lot of church history recently, I've seen this is a problem that the church has always dealt with. Just because somebody goes by the name Christian or says that they're a follower of God does not mean that they're actually a follower of God. We see that Paul warns against these kind of people. Jesus is warning against false prophets. It is imperative as Christians that we learn to maintain our purity and that we do this by uh, looking at the fruit of those that we're allowing to influence us. Now, what is fruit? Fruit is something that uh, comes out of a person. It's what they're producing. And so when we look at fruit, I really think this is encompassing two things. The first thing people usually think of is their behavior. What kind of character does this person have? And that's absolutely right. I think that's part of fruit. But I think the other part of what's coming forth is their teaching. What's their speech? What kind of doctrine are they preaching? If either one of those things is bad, then we have a serious problem that we need to watch out for in the church and that we need to guard ourselves against. Listen to what uh, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
Paul's telling Timothy, you have to watch out for false prophets and you have to maintain both your life and your doctrine. They're both vitally important. And he says that in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, our doctrine, our character actually related to our salvation. Now, it's not that we work our way towards our salvation. But the reason that doctrine is so important for salvation is we have to have actual true faith in the true God. If we have faith in something that can't save in anything other than Jesus, then we're not going to be saved. And at the same time, our, the way that our life reflects that is true faith in Jesus results in a life that bears fruit for him. There's no such thing as a true faith in Jesus that doesn't result in real life transformation. And so we see both our doctrine and our character are vitally linked to the true Christian life. And it's vital that we have both of these in the church. So we need to be people that examine those that want to partner with us in ministry. Those that we that want to influence us. Those that we listen to. Those that we watch YouTube videos for. Those that we read books from. Any of those kind of things. There's two major things we need to look at. We need to ask questions about their doctrine. And we need to ask questions about their character. So do they have good doctrine? That first idea. We can't partner with people that aren't preaching the true gospel. Just because someone claims that they're a Christian doesn't mean that they actually follow the biblical Jesus. There are a lot of false gospels out there, okay? Uh, some of these are more obvious. They go by names of, of uh, different sects that we are already familiar with. People like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses where you can clearly say, hey, no, that's not Christianity. But there's also uh, some that I think are a little bit more subtle and probably more dangerous because it's not as easy to see that what they're preaching is not actually biblical Christianity. And this would include things like uh, liberal theology. I don't mean that in the sense of a political term. It has nothing to do with politics, but it has to do with the, a school of interpretation for the Bible, where rather than seeing the Bible as God's word that shapes us, it's kind of a, a way of looking at the Bible that really allows you to decide what you want to take and what you want to leave. And so you kind of become the God that chooses uh, what truth actually is. Um, another one is the prosperity gospel that's spreading all around the world very wildly. Uh, it, it's wrapped up in all the right Christian terms. And a lot of time there's an abuse of Bible verses, a lot of scripture that may be used, but it's all twisted in a way that completely neglects the actual message that Jesus taught. When Jesus taught that you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after him, this is something that the prosperity gospel leaves out. And so the prosperity gospel preaches for a, about a life of comfort and ease and blessing here on this earth, whereas Jesus teaches us not to store up treasures on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven. And we see as Christians that we're actually supposed to be people that die to ourselves daily as we follow Jesus. And so these are just a couple examples. There are many examples. I don't have time to get into all of them. And I can't really cover any of them in great detail. But as Christians, we have to be people that watch our doctrine and guard it closely. There's a, because I can't get into all this right now, I want to direct you to a good resource, which there'll be a link to in the description of this video. Uh, but you know that there's a thing that we do every year as a church called Secret Church. And it's a pastor whose name is David Platt that puts this on every year. He did one a couple years ago on cults and counterfeit gospels. And if you want to dig more deeply into what is the true gospel and how do these uh, various things that kind of dress themselves up as Christianity but actually aren't, how do we discern those? There's a lot of teaching that you can find in the link. Uh, in the description to this video that will walk you through those kind of things. Um, 
But not only do we need to watch doctrine, we also have to watch character. Right? This is also the part of a fruit of person. So even if a person is saying all of the right things, we have to say, well, do I want to partner with this person in ministry if their life doesn't exhibit the fruit that, it, that the Spirit should be producing? Right? Saying all the right things is one thing, but actually living by faith, believing it, and having the character that reflects that is another thing. And both of these are going to be essential for any sort of uh, really significant gospel partnership. So this would include things like... Um, I don't know, evangelistic endeavors that you might want to do together with other groups. Or uh, also on a personal level, things like marriage. You know, you, you should be marrying somebody that has both good doctrine and good character. These are essential kinds of things for that. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just totally reject fellowship of all people that don't have good doctrine and good character. While we need to guard ourselves against being uh, poorly influenced by them, we should have the same missionary heart that God does and wanting to love them and direct them towards truth. And that leads us to the next major takeaway, I think, which is that we are called to love people no matter what. All outsiders, whether they're, they're people that are misguided or people that are intentionally trying to hurt us, God has called us to love them. This is something Jesus also said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 45. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Even if people have bad character or bad doctrine, we are still called to love them just the same, just as our Father loves us, just as He loves sinners. Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors all the time and shows the heart that, that God has for us. So we are called to love people um, that, that are obviously and intentionally opposing us or even people that really annoy us because they call themselves Christians but give it a bad name. Talking people like Westboro Baptists, something like that, where it's like, man, I'm so angry at them. You can have a righteous anger for their behavior, but we are still called to be people that actually love them and pray for them. And then finally, we have to be people that invite them into becoming God's people. We saw this in Jeremiah, right? Where he talked about this idea that he was going to uh, restore these Gentile nations and that the, the people of God were supposed to teach them to be worshipers of the one true God of Yahweh. And so God came to us as outsiders and invited us into his people. Look how the Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. You see this? We were the people that were far off. We were the people that needed to be reconciled. And God, who has a missionary heart and who loves those, even that have bad character and bad doctrine, which is where all of us were at some point, reaches out and he says, I'm not going to count your sins against you. I want to love you and bring you back to myself. And so consequently, as his people, we need to follow in this, those same kinds of footsteps. As we read on, uh, the second half of, starting the second half of verse 19 there, 
And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we see here that we need to be people that follow in the footsteps of the Jews in some ways, in that we have a, a heart that's about guarding our purity, that's about being zealous for that, that's on the lookout for enemies, that watches for that. That's all good. But where I think that they messed up and they missed an opportunity was that they didn't show much love for these people. And, in, and their only concern was protecting themselves rather than actually trying to take the Samaritans and help lead them towards worship of the one true God. And so may our love be what compels us to, to reach out to outsiders, not just to build walls and reject them and try and keep them out of our lives. So to sum all of this up, I want to go back to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, listen to this metaphor that he told us where he says we're the salt of the earth. He says this in Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus is telling us, you're the salt of the earth. Now, what does salt do? Salt has two major functions. It both preserves and flavors food. And if salt loses its saltiness, and I think what he means here is it becomes defiled, right? Salt can't actually become not salt, but what it can do is it can get defiled. So if I snuck into your house and wanted to play a prank on you and I took some uh, white sand and mixed it in with your salt shaker, and the next time that you went and used that salt and you start eating that sand, you say, oh, this is really gross. What, what would you do with that salt that's in your salt shaker? There was nothing that you could do with it except throw it out. There's no way that you could, uh, could purify it or anything at that point. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, if salt loses its saltiness, it can't have the effect it's supposed to. It won't be an effective preservative. It won't be an effective flavor. All it's good for is being thrown out. Yet at the same time, how does salt flavor? And how does salt preserve? Well, the only way you can do that is by actually getting on the food that it's supposed to impact. And so this is an important thing for us to keep both these things in mind for us as Christians. We must maintain our purity. We cannot allow the world to corrupt us. We cannot allow the, the influence of those that don't follow Jesus to make us people that are sinful and that rebel against God. Yet at the same time, we can't have any sort of impact that God has called us to have if all we do is ever just sit in our salt shaker. And so let us follow the example of the Jews in Ezra and being zealous for purity. But let us differ from them in choosing that we are going to love and welcome outsiders in so that they would know the, and be able to worship the one true God. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. I thank you for what you taught us this morning. I pray that you would help us to be the salt of the earth, to be people that are zealous for purity and that maintain that. Um, yet at the same time, God, people that are not afraid to get out of the salt shaker and that are not afraid to, to go and to welcome in and to love those that are outside of your kingdom right now. God, give us discernment in, in seeing wolves that are in sheep's clothing, Lord. Let us uh, be vigilant and, and guard our doctrine and guard our lives and keep out all that is false and all that is trying to deceive. Yet, God, at the same time, help us to love those, even those that are our enemies, that we would be able to always have the heart that you have towards them. We love you, God. We thank you so much for who you are. And we pray this in your son's awesome name.
Amen.